Hey, Brad. Hey, Mark. How's it going? It's going well. How are you? I'm doing good. Thanks for coming on. Well, thanks for uh, having me. So, uh, I wanted to talk to you, and I'd reached out to you because, um, I mean, we had met a few years prior, I guess, going back to maybe like around 2010, I believe. And uh, we had been at a, a book fair, a local book fair, and I got to learn about some of your books. And, you know, I think it's a pretty big deal. I was very proud of myself and my friend, a good friend of mine. We wrote a book together, and we wrote a, a collection of short stories together. And it takes, like, a lot of work and a lot of dedication to be able to write a book. And, you know, you are – you definitely have four novels. And I, I know there's a fifth. I'm not sure if the fifth is finished. And we'll yeah, get it. Uh, yeah, the fifth is finished. Um, just came out about a – Oh, a month or two ago. There you go. And that takes, I mean, that takes like a lot of dedication and a lot of work. So I want to talk to you about about your work uh, and about writing. So um, how long, I, I'm assuming you've always just had an, a love for writing. Can you talk about uh, that, where your love of writing started and maybe some of who of your like bigger inspirations are? Okay. Um, well, probably my biggest inspiration is like Stephen King. And I think it's just a lot of it is because I can, I can relate to the way he writes. I can, I can, I can understand him. He's, you know, easily readable. And I like, I like the type of storytelling that he does, you know, whether it's his horror or his regular, um, you know, just mainstream drama. And um, so that's, that's probably been my biggest influence as far as trying to be natural. When I, you know, when I write, obviously you, you know, you want your characters to be in character and, and the story to go and, you know, the way it's going. But um, just have it very relatable or understandable both the characters and the way you're telling the story. Right. So that's kind of what I try to do. Um, 2010, I think I had my first book actually came out in at the beginning of 2010. And my second book came out at the end of 2010. Um, and then, yeah, I've written, I guess three more since then. Wow. Um, so what was the rest of that question? Did I answer? I you well, no, you 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 did you did answer the question. Um, you know, I you you were talking about how Stephen King was a great inspiration of yours when you were a kid, when you were a young kid. Did you enjoy writing? Uh, what I tried to do, and I'm sorry, I'm trying to I'm trying to find some things I wanted to bring up here. Looking through my favorites on uh, you know the internet here, yeah. and um. When I was a kid, I used to like to read a lot, and I what I read then when I was like I used to I used to like to go to the movies. So, um, and I have I have to say I'm sorry because this is on my mind right now. I have to say this first. Of course, I have a I have a like a throat condition, and I can't always speak um, as clearly as I would like to. 
so I, you know, anytime I know that I'm going to be talking a lot, I, uh, I kind of spend the day before doing some vocal exercising things. And, and what I, what works best for me to do is, um, you know, because there's other people in the house and I get intimidated and stuff. I go out to my car and, uh, you know, pop in uh, my favorite music and then just try to build up my voice by singing. And uh, so I did that yesterday because I knew I was going to be talking to you today. And I think I kind of actually stripped it out. <laughs> oh, wow. I may, I may have overdone it. So um, by last night, my voice was like this, this rumbly gravel going on. I thought, oh, crap, I'm going to, you know, not be okay today. And so by, when I went to bed, I thought, well, I'll sleep this off and be okay the next day. And, and it, it, it's pretty much there. And if I talk lower down here in my, my low resonant voice, um, it can maybe get a little clearer. But I think by the end of the conversation, I'll probably be speaking normally. But right now, it sounds a little gravelly to me. So sure. I have to get that off my mind. If I sound strange in my voice, there you go. Um, but back on topic. So when I was a kid, I used to go to the movies a lot. And then if I really liked the movie, I'd go and try and find the book. Because they, they did a lot of paperback novelizations back then. And I don't know if it was, you know, due to lack of, um, lack of uh, entertainment going on in the world or what. But so anyways, I used to read a lot of those kind of books. And somewhere along the line, I think when I was close to around 20, I, I was in the middle of a book. I just remember being in the middle of a book. And I'm not even sure exactly which book it was. But I put the book down with full intention to finish the book. It wasn't bad, as I remember. And I just never picked the book up again. And from that moment on, and like I say, I was about 20 years old. From that moment on, I, I, I just never picked up another book. I never read another book. Yeah. And um, I don't know why. There was like, I didn't have any kind of like book phobia or anything like that going on. But um, I just never got around to it. And then life went on and I ended up, uh, I was born and raised in California. And I uh, had met my, during that time, I had met my, my future wife then. And she was from Kentucky. And she had... Uh, she had moved to California not too long before. That's and then she culture having, shock. Uh, yeah, and she was having, uh, her mother was, uh, had taken terminally ill. So her family had asked her to come back home and help take care of her mom. They didn't expect her to live, you know, another six months. But we were at a point, uh, her and I, where, you know, I was like ready for a change. I was ready to do something. And I, you know, and I just told her, I said, well, go on and go. I said, and leave your car here and I'll sell the cars for some money and I'll move on back there and meet you. And I, and that's what we did. And I sold both hers and mine car. And, um, and I rented this big U-Haul and I packed up all my worldly possessions and I hightailed it to Kentucky. And, um, then two years after that, we got married Two years after that, my first my son was born, um, and and quite honestly, almost two years to the day, it was within a week, my daughter was born. So 
so I don't. I guess I was on a two-year thing. Yeah. And um, so this all happened in my twenties, and my son was born in 1989 um, in June, and in October of that year, I turned 30. And so when I was 29, and while she was pregnant and getting ready to, you know, give birth and whatever. I was going through this thing in my head where I thought, okay, I'm 29. I've tried climbing the corporate ladder. I've, I've worked for, you know, several different companies and I was, I was always in retail and ironically enough, I hated retail, but it was like what I knew. It's like, you know, it's just like one of those things you get into and you discover you don't particularly care for, but maybe you're kind of good at it and then you just keep going and you get stuck in um, where you don't necessarily want to be. And um, so I started when I was 29, I started just really racking my brain for us. You know, what else, what else do I know? What else can I do? How do I get out of this? And um, I, uh, I thought of, I spent some time actually kind of like going over my life and what I, what I knew. And I started thinking about writing and I thought, well, I've always written, I've always like written poetry or, you know, rewrote my own song lyrics to different songs that I liked or things like that. And once there were two or three times, maybe I tried writing like, uh, actually, well, I think one short story, I may have tried to write a short story and then I wrote a short play or two because I was very into theater when I was in high school and, uh, so I, I thought, well, I'll write a play. And so I kept going around and around, and I came to the conclusion that I thought that I was a writer. I, I'm a writer. I can be a writer. But I'd never really written a good, solid, even long story or a short or a novella or anything like that. And I started thinking about, you know, my influences. And it kept coming back to me how much that I thought that I liked Stephen King. But then I realized that all of my opinions were based on his on the movies. Yeah. From his book. Sure. I had never I had never read a Stephen King book in my life, and I'm walking around talking about you know what a great writer Stephen King is, and and, and it hit me. I thought, well, you know, he doesn't necessarily make the movies. I mean, he made one movie at that time, um, and now I can't remember what it was called. It's about the killer trucks. Coming in. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I know, I know. I can't. You know the, the... It'll, it'll come to me later in the middle of something else. Yeah, I know which one you're talking about. It escapes me too. Yeah, and um, so, so, how did it go? It's like at the time. So I, so I thought, okay, well, I'm going to read a Stephen King book, and I thought if I, if I, you know, read this book, and I think that I can do that then that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pursue writing and try and be a writer. And I believe that it was on the night or the next day after the birth of my son, he was born on June, uh, now I, now I got to get my kids straight. He was June 12th. My daughter's June 6th. And so on June 12th, 1989, you know, my wife gave birth. My son was born. Everything was great. We, doing the whole birthing thing and whatever and then that that night she stayed in the hospital just for you know I think it was I don't know if I, at that time in 89 
she may have been there just like one night. And so for that one night, I went home, I'm alone, my wife and my newborn son are in the hospital, and I had picked up uh, Stephen King's most recent paperback at that time, what had just come out in paperback, and that was his book, uh, The Tommyknockers. Yes. And uh, so I started reading The Tommyknockers that night, that night while I was, you know, home alone, and uh you know, and it was weird. It was like every page I turned, I, I was reading it, and I and I thought, and I turned a page, and I thought, I can do that. And I read another page, I'm like, I can do that. I can do that. And I kept turning the pages thinking I can do that. And it occurred to me, and it hit me. It's like the, the thought that came into my mind was, he's just making shit up. <laughs> he's just making it up right out of his head. And I thought, I can do that. Um and you know and the more i read i I was you know just taking in his his uh i guess the creativity and in the story that he was making up where he would go with it where he would take the characters and how he would get there and whatever and that was kind of the the birth in my mind of my you know my my novel writing desire to do it and that then so I finished that book that year um I didn't have I that was the only book I was reading and I kind of ate it up it had been a while since I'd read and I really loved that book I've talked to um friends a couple of friends since then who who that was not one of their favorite they didn't particularly care for it for some reason but I loved it I, I thought it was great and uh that was it that was one song when I got finished with it, I thought, well, I'm, I'm going to just start me a book and write me a book. So right. that's what I did. Yeah, and it's just you you find something that you that you think you could love, that you think you can do, and then you take a stab at it, and then it's like, what do you have to lose? You either try it and it doesn't work out, or you try it and you find out that you love it. So, exactly. Yeah, I always I always really loved Stephen King. Stephen King was, is, one of my, is one of my favorites. I remember as a... As a teenager, I I absolutely loved uh, Salem's Lot. Yeah, I thought that was a fun twist on the vampire genre, and yeah. uh, I really loved um, the Stand. The Stand was awesome, and eleven twenty two sixty three was a really good one. That's my favorite Stephen King book of all time. Yeah, twenty two. 63 is my absolute favorite book that he ever wrote. Yeah, I absolutely love that that story well, I'm, I'm too. Glad to hear you say it. <laughs> yeah, well, I I've always been captivated by the JFK assassination and that period of history. So there's that. And what I thought was so cool was he had tried writing that Stephen King did years ago, years ago, early on in his career, and he found. Uh, or I, I could actually be getting this confused with, I think I might actually be getting this confused with, uh, the dome, what I was going to say. But I want to say he had tried to write 112263 and he might have thought that it was too daunting and had come back to it and, and wrote it. I, I might be getting that mistaken halfway through my story. But 112263 is definitely on my list of one of my favorite Stephen King stories. Totally awesome book. Yeah, it's one of my like favorite of anybody, but you know, especially when it has. Yeah, I think I, I think I'd heard that he he um, was 
hesitant on writing it because he's, I think he was saying there's already just so much out there on, on JFK and the assassination. And I think he was thinking he didn't want to be just another person, you know, forming an opinion on the uh, Kennedy assassination. Yeah. And, you know, but then his, he, I guess he felt that his story was different and unique enough to, to go ahead and do it, which I'm glad he did. My, I think my take, my thing is one reason why I really love that story. And I kind of like agree with his initial thought because I actually was kind of hesitant about reading it because I thought, man, I don't, I don't want to read another book on John Kennedy. I just, you know, I heard, I've, I've heard a lot. I've heard enough. I know the story. I know the conspiracy theories and everything else. And I just, I was kind of hesitant about, do I really want to get into another, you know, John Kennedy assassination thing? Yeah. But then, you know, it was Stephen King and I thought, okay, well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm trying to read as many of his books as I can, which to date I'm like one shy of reading them all. And, um, then when I read it, just, you know, you, I, I realized there's, it's not necessarily about Kennedy and the assassination in himself. It's more the story of, of the people that, that are involved that lead up to the day of the assassination. And man, I am drawing a real old person's blank here. The guy that, that shot Kennedy. Oh, Oswald. Oswald. Okay. It's more the story of trying to, a guy who knows what the future is going to be. And so he's trying to track down Oswald and, and his, and it's his story and how he gets there. And it's the whole, um, going back in time kind of thing, you know, going through a portal and, and ending up back in time. And then, um, you know, how he kind of changes and rearranges and tries to get to, he knows the assassination's coming up, and so he's trying to figure out, you know, how to stop it or should he stop it and, you know, all that. And I think I have a fascination with, I don't want to say time travel, but I maybe have a, a, a fascination with, with history. Yeah. And, which I, I never used to have before, and then some somehow or another in the last, 10 years I've become really interested in history. And so um, I think it's a, a kind of a neat idea to be able to go back in history and, and, and maybe if you know even what's coming up, to watch it happen or live it or change it or see what you can do about it because you know what's coming up. And as a writer, that's what I have complete option to do. Right. I can, I can write history and I can rearrange it or change it or whatever as long as, you know, I feel that whoever's reading this knows that I'm writing fiction and doesn't think I'm trying to, you know, rearrange somebody's conspiracy theory or something. <laughs> yeah, I, I myself do have, I really love stories about time travel and I love stories that are set in historical places. And I love stories that are set in just different eras. And the one thing that I love about King specifically is that he's so good at writing characters. There's very few, there's very few authors out there that write characters the way that he does. 
and in the way that he does, because he said, uh, it's a quote of his, and I'm, I mean, it's not quoting it verbatim, but he said that a plot is a good way for a story to go and die, that he doesn't believe in plotting. Um, he doesn't believe in mapping a story out. He kind of has like a general idea of the story. He has like the egg of the story, and he might have a few big parts. But ultimately, he says he knows nothing. His, his What he actually said was, quote-unquote, excuse my language, he knows fuck all what's going to happen with his stories when he's writing it. And I just thought that was so funny like for, for an author because there's very few other authors that I've read that – write prose and write stories in that way that he just he lets it take it where he where he he lets it go wherever it wants to go and he lets the story sort of dictate itself i think that and i think that comes through as a reader when you're reading it you can tell that it's there's a spontaneity to it and an unpredictability to it that i love that that might be why i find such a relatability to it because when i you know when i read when i read his stuff it doesn't feel contrived it doesn't feel like he's, you know, working through a, a format or, or, or anything, uh, or an outline, um, anything like that. It does feel like he's being very natural with the characters. They're kind of acting and reacting to what, what's coming at them. And, you know, he goes in whatever direction. It, it seems like that, um, that the forces kind of, I guess, dictate, you know, for him to go and I and that's I believe that that's a lot how I write because I don't I don't start out with an outline I get a like you say an egg I get the, the, the basic kind of all right where I think I want to go with this and and I mean I have literally started a book and at times when from page one I just really don't I don't know where I'm going I may have a couple of main characters and it's like, okay, I like the idea of this guy being this kind of person or whatever else. And then bam, I'm just off writing, you know, and see where it goes. And, and I, I do that a lot. And fortunately, um, it's worked out for me. Yeah. And, um, I just totally had a, a mind blank, but what I, just Stephen King in general, I I love that. I love the spontaneity of it, and um, how he writes his characters. I think, oh, that's great, and um, the fact that he doesn't plot. And you know, I try to kind of stick to that same format too, where I don't. And he has said, I just got back on my my train here, uh, that he has a lot of ideas that that he'll have that don't ever get written. He'll have ideas. He'll, he'll read something in a paper. He'll read an article. He'll, he'll, he'll overhear something and he'll get this sort of seed of an idea. And he said, some seeds never get planted. He doesn't always write everything. And, but the ones that, that are good, you know, you have a good idea when years can go by and you still have that story in the back of your mind. Cause you'll get a lot of ideas that are just just that just die and you forget all about them and that's probably not worth remembering in general then but these stories that you get these big like major ideas if you're still thinking about writing that story and years have passed then you might be on to something yeah it might be worthwhile to go after it I, I think i heard i read or heard the same thing i think somebody had asked him um do you do you write these ideas down when you get these ideas Some, something like that and 
I, his, his response was kind of like, no, I don't really write them down. He says that if, if they're worth going after, he says they kind of just get in my head and they start festering there and they just kind of hang on. And he says that if I feel like a certain idea or a certain thing is just hanging on and, and staying there in my head, he goes, then I go after it. But, but, uh, but if it doesn't, you know, if he has an idea or something and, you know, two days later or a month later or whatever, it's just gone. He doesn't really think about it anymore than, you know, he doesn't go after it. So, uh, yeah, I've pretty much heard the same thing. Yeah. So let's talk about, let's get into your first novel as a horror story, The Melting. And okay. what I thought was cool, I read the quote, a quote from Anne Rice. Everybody knows who Anne Rice is. That said, yeah, an Anne Rice endorsement. Yeah, it said, Brad, congratulations and all blessings on the melting. You know the secret. It's courage. We need you yeah. and your work. I thought that was pretty cool. Yes, Anne Rice needs me. So, that's <laughs> so how did it come to be the melting? Um, to give everybody kind of like a brief overview of the story. That one came about, actually, that's one of those ones that, you know, people ask about, um, other people like Stephen King and whatever, um, do you, do, you know, do you dream these things or what? And that one actually stemmed from a dream I had uh, at a time when I was ready to start writing. It was like back in 1989, and I was thinking, I was thinking I'm going to start a book, I'm going to write a book, and and somewhere shortly thereafter, I, I had this dream, um, and you know, and it was one of those very kind of creepy, scary kind of dreams. Um, I won't go into detail on it, but it's 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 this certain setting and these certain people and what what's happening to them. Excuse me. And I I woke up from the dream and I thought, oh, that is spooky. That is really creepy and, and I, I think I wrote the dream down I wrote it down because I have a tendency to have great thoughts dreams and if I don't write them down I mean they just like they vanish from my mind especially dreams because the more you know you think about it when you first wake up and then two hours later you're like now wait a minute what did what did I do you know the, the details start to oh yeah anyway. and um so I wrote this one down and then I thought how do I incorporate that into you know like i could make a short story just from that dream but i wanted to write a you know a complete novel and i thought how do i incorporate that into a novel and so i thought about the the kind of different people that were in the dream they were in a certain situation and so i thought how do what you know what kind of people can i come up with and how am i going to get them into that situation and and it just started from there. I don't I don't even really know, you know, how it worked out. All I know is that when I started writing the book, my goal was to get to that dream, was to get to that point that was the dream. And so I just I don't know. I just started writing, and I thought, okay, I know where I'm heading. I know where I'm heading. I have no idea how I'm going to get there, <laughs> but I just I kind of, you know, was going down the train track and and it's that at one point, at some point, um, I realized that I was at the point of setting up the circumstances 
that would take these people into that situation. And and even when I was even when I was creating the situation, I didn't know that that was going to be, you know, the, the, where they end up. I was I just kept creating the situation, and all of a sudden it came to me. It's like, oh, if I have this, do this, and this, do that. That will drive these people into this situation, and and I did it. And when and once it happened, I realized I'm only about halfway through this book. So it was kind of cool because I rubbed, I got to the point of the dream, and I wrote the whole thing out, and I got it through it and whatever, and I got my characters through it and past it and beyond it, and then you know then I had no idea how it was going to end. So then I was back to that point of like, let's just keep chugging along here and see where we end up. Um, but that one was definitely inspired by a dream. And then that was then it's weird. It seems strange to me that it, that, that my dream point was actually midpoint in the story. I think about it every once in a while. And I think, how did I, how did I come about to, get those people to that point. I mean, everything after that point is like, you just go with, with what, you know, with the remains, what you've been left with, you go with that. But to lead up to it and get to that point, that, that kind of fascinates me. I wish I could remember how I did that, but yeah, but it worked, worked for me. So, yeah, I love, I'm fascinated with reading or hearing about how authors, came came up with their ideas you know because a lot of times it's something really small it could be just they 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 saw somebody somewhere or they overheard something or they read something and yeah. you know or a lot of times I'm, I suppose it's true that they they take bits of their own personality and bits of themselves and I mean you really can't help but do that plug pieces yeah. of yourself in the story because that's where you're, you're drawing from but um, I wrote my my third book um, I had this character that I I kind of knew what I wanted to do with the character, but I felt like I needed to give him some you know some background. And I, and I, I when I think about it, I I feel like I think I feel like it, like I may have rushed in the book getting past all of his background stuff because that's not really what I had intended to write. But I I did want to give that information. Um, and then I've I've read the, you know. I read recently somewhere somebody said something about if you're going to write a book, you better write a story that you like because you're going to read that book about 75 times. <laughs> At minimum, that's the truth. Oh, yeah. You know? And uh, so uh, I've read the book a lot of times. And every time I go into it, I, I think, you know, am I rushing this? Am I rushing this? But then it reads, I don't know, it reads really smooth for me. So apparently not. But the guy's background, I start from, I actually start from uh, when his parents got together. And, you know, I don't, like I say, I don't spend a lot of time there because I wanted to move up to, you know, where I had the character or, or to the person that I wanted to write. But so I started there with his parents, how they got together and, you know, then his birth and then I'm like, boom, 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 going, like going through his childhood and bringing him up to, um, uh, basically, uh, late, later teens. I think I wanted to get at least to his, 
uh, junior or senior year in high school because that's when his life started changing and becoming the person that I wanted to write. So up to that point, up to the time where he's about 17 years old, the first 17 years of his life, I really, really pulled from my own childhood, from my, my own life. Yeah. Like I, I, he was almost me, you know, when, when he was younger. And, uh, and we're talking about Damon Breyer. Damon Breyer, yeah, that's my third book. And he's a, he's a psychologist and, uh, and, um, that movie, I, that movie, that book, I call it a, uh, um, you know, a mystery, a murder mystery. And there is murder. In fact, there's more than one murder that takes place in the book. But it's not like a whodunit murder mystery. Um, it's, it's more like a how did things come about to be this way kind of mystery. And there's that the mystery of that book actually is there's a set of uh, there's a set of five characters that I don't give a lot of background on. They just, I kind of bring them in for particular reasons and, and purposes. And the biggest mystery of that book is who really are those five people? Why, you know, I, 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 my, the focus is on Damon Breyer, the psychologist, and then four of his, um, four of his, patients or past patients I guess if you call them patients and then his best friend so those four and his best friend those five people um, I kind of the focus is on his patients but he introduces those patients to each to an, another person because um, he realizes or he thinks that you know he's not going to be able to when, when he first starts out he's handling and dealing with um, juvenile delinquent cases, kids that are, you know, put a, put in, into juvenile hall and whatever back then because they're troublemakers. And him being a young and upcoming psychologist, it, you know, that's a place where he starts where he can kind of get his footing is to try and help counsel, um, you know, ju juvenile delinquent kids, I guess. And he kind of realizes as his career is building and going on, that he's not going to be able to stay with those those people uh, forever. So he introduces them to, uh, and, you know, the, this other person that he knows, you know, each of them to a different other person. So there's like four other people that he introduces to these four patients. And um, that, that he knows, the four people he knows, then you all have kind of a similar background as that these these delinquent kids have. So his theory is, you know, he works with them for a little bit, gets them kind of like um, seeing, you know, the, the the errors of their ways, I guess, and and tries to get them straightened out. And then when he's ready to move on, he's like, you know, let me introduce you to this other person that I know who's had the same kind of experiences that you've had, and maybe between the two and, and they've come out of it and they're, they're on the right track now. And maybe between the two of you, um, you know, they can help you, you know, lead a better life for yourself and, and a better future. And so he introduces um, his four patients to these four other people and kind of sets them up with a friendship 
so that he can let them go and leave them and, and he can move on with his career. And um, the mystery of that book really is, who are these people that he's setting them up with? And, um, you know, during the course of the book, and it really is one of my favorite books, there's so much story in that book, but um, the course of this book, there's there are murders and there are things, and you find out why people, including himself, and actually, especially, especially himself, do what they do, what you know, what they, in their life, and go where they go. And um, did it, you know, at, at the end, towards the end of the book, uh, you start finding out who, you know, where these four people came from, who they are, and, and uh, you know, why they're there. And I try to, in my mind, if you're going to write anything with a mystery to it, um, you want to, I guess, give give clues and kind of like make sense of things so that by the time you're ready to reveal the secret uh, or the mystery you're building, you want the reader almost there. You want the reader already, you know, toiling around in their head their theory of what's what and who's who. And so just when the reader is saying, I think this is what's happening, right at that time, you kind of want to go ahead and reveal it so that the reader doesn't get too far ahead of you and they start thinking, well, I already know what's going to happen. I already know what's going to happen. And then they've got to read another 100 pages or whatever before (laughs) you, you tell them. Yeah. Well, and what was different, too, about Damon Breyer specifically, like, so your first one was a horror story, and then your second novel was was around a warlock, and Damon Breyer is, is non, it's non-supernatural. Yes. That was, that was my, uh, that was my goal with that one, too, I thought, because I, 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 actually, my, well, I, I guess I knew my second book was, was going to be supernatural, um. I didn't know to what extent, but, but as I was writing it, it kept occurring to me. I thought, you know, I wonder if I can write something straight out with, like, it's like if I write myself into a corner, can I write myself back out of it or whatever without having to resort to something magic happening? And, and then when I was writing it, I, that was actually kind of my goal is to keep writing myself into a corner. I just, I was, kind of mostly testing my, my, my own writing ability. And so I would write myself into a corner and I thought, okay, how are you going to get out of this one? That makes sense. That's not just something out of the blue. That's like, you know, the reader's going to say, well, where did that come from? That didn't, you know, that was never even a part of this. And I, I hate that when that happens. And, um, so I, and man, there were times when I wanted to so bad. It's like, can I just bring in some magic person that'll zap me out of this? And, uh, and I, you know, said no. Yeah. And uh, so, and I, 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 I love that book. That's, and that may be the reason why is because it, it, there was no supernatural. And I mean, I come up with some storylines in that book that. Um, one in particular that I was, I think because football season is just starting up again, and I had, there's a scene in there 
um, where a guy is all in, impressed and blown away by um, the fact that this other guy has a Tom Brady autograph football. Dude, how did you get a hold of that? How did you get you know Brady to sign his football and whatever? And I was thinking about that the other day, and uh, and and I thought about that scene, and I thought, man, that book has got a lot of different storylines going on in it. So yeah, I really like that. Well, and, and and talking about painting yourself into a corner and sort of seeing if you can get out of it, you know, not to go back to Stephen King again, but there was a, it made me think of this story that he had said where he had a story that he was trying to write that took place in uh, an airport, I believe, uh, in the bathroom. And he said, you know, the idea had come to him when he was in the airport and he saw all these men just standing outside of the restrooms while their wives or girlfriends or whomever was in there. And they're just standing there seemingly forever waiting for people. And he kind of had this idea of, you know, what's happening to these people in there that they're never coming out. And he, and he started devising this whole plot of more and more people going in there and never coming out again. And he got to the point when he couldn't think of the next step of what it possibly could be that all these people would be going in there and never coming out again. And to this day, he was never really able to come up with a satisfactory answer. And he always says that if anybody comes up with a good answer, to send it to him and they'll go halfsies on it. But I thought that was funny that really? he, yeah, that he had painted himself into a corner that he couldn't figure out how to get around and he had no yeah. satisfactory answer. So it's really cool whenever you can come up with something and you're, and you're super proud of it and you know that it's good. It, you yeah. know, sometimes it's hard getting yourself out of those corners. When you were talking about that, it made me think of the Langoliers. Maybe that story was the Langoliers. I don't know. But, uh -huh. which, um, but it surprised me too that he thinks just anybody is going to be able to just, get in touch with him to talk with him. <laughs> I mean, you Very know, true. I'm like, like, Steve, you know, I could come up with a, with a plan for you here, but just exactly how is it I'm supposed to get into it <laughs> and you're going to take the time to talk with me about it, you know? Yeah, very true. He's not one of those people that I think are, I mean, I think he's on Twitter a little bit. Yeah, he, he is on Twitter. He's actually on Twitter more than you might think if you, if you yeah. checked it. Probably. Well, I know he was quite vocal around the prior president administration. He was quite vocal publicly. Yeah. Like, I'd seen continuous statements from him, and that's when I realized, like, oh, he's a pretty avid Twitter user. Userer. Oh. Yeah, userer, yeah. <laughs> and he, did, he does not like Donald Trump at all. No. But, oh, oh, that word just crossed my lips. Oh. <laughs> but... That's that's hot because I you know I kept seeing those those tweets I guess that he was that he was doing I'm like man he's been very vocal about this and I didn't really think um, too much about it until one time and this was maybe a year and a half ago something like that um, I was at there's a bookstore around here called Half Price Bookstore yes I love and, it uh, yeah and which one do you go to um, there's one, uh, over close to Westport Road. Um, there's one out there on Hurstbourne Lane, maybe. That might maybe be the that, one I'm thinking there, of. There might be, there's, there is another one, but I think, I think you're right, I think there's another one maybe out on Shelbyville Road or something. There's, on that end, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's been a yeah. while since I, pre-pandemic. <laughs> yeah, and, um, 
So I was at half price doing a book signing and I was there for several hours that day and, and my book set up and, and that's always kind of, I, I love half price because they, they will let the authors come in and do that, you know, for free. It's like they give you a little corner of space and here you go and you can stay here for, you know, however many hours is set up and there's no charge and they don't ask for a percentage of your sales or anything. It's great wow. because I've tried going to, and I won't mention other bookstores, maybe mostly because a lot of them are already out of business now, but um, there are several other big bookstores and, and even little ones where they would let you come in. But seriously, every one of them that I went to, they wanted 40% of what you took. Wow. To get that thing. And I'm thinking, okay, I give you 40%. Then I have to reimburse myself for the cost of buying the books because I have, you know, I have, uh, you, you know, your author's price, but still I have to buy the books to bring there to sell. And so I'm already out that money and then they want 40% more. And I'm thinking, I'm lucky if I break even walking out of here. And that really bothered me. That annoyed me. It's like, I'm not asking you people to do anything. I'm not even asking you to bring it up to your registers. They can pay me personally right over here at the table. All I need is to space for a couple of hours. And so, you know, everybody's got their rules and how they want to do it, and that's fine. But I love the fact that Half Price will, you know, let the authors come in and, and do their thing and take up that small space to do that. And so I was at Half Price, and I was doing a book signing, and I got talking to somebody, and, you know, I guess we started talking about my style of writing or, or where, you know, it came from. And I, I mentioned that, well, you know, I'm very, uh, I'm very influenced by Stephen King and I like his work and this and that. And almost a minute after I mentioned King's name, this, this person, this guy just kind of like turned with a very wary kind of look, but a half smile too. Yeah. And he said, and he's like, uh, well, I hope you don't bring your politics into it like Stephen King does. On his <laughs> and, and I could tell right off that he was very annoyed with what Stephen King was, was tweeting. And I know that, if, you know, you get outspoken about, if you're a, um, I don't want to, I don't, I, I could have used the word celebrity, but I don't mean any kind of big celebrity, but if you're someone in, you know, that's in the public's view, um, and you start, and, and you, you're trying to sell yourself or you're trying to sell your work or whatever. Um, and you start talking, um, firmly against what some people believe or think or whatever, that you, that's, that's a customer loss. Oh yeah. If you're, if, you know, if you're there for the intention of, um, peddling your wares, I guess, and making, making the dollar and whatever, then if you offend that person, that that's another dollar gone that you're not going to get. And obviously, um, you know, people that are in that position that they go and they set up and they try and sell and they're doing this work and trying to get this stuff out there. You know, the bottom line goal is to um, either create a fan base or, or you, you know, make the money or, or whatever. 
Uh, obviously, you're doing what you love, so that's that's your basic instinct, I guess, is like, I'm a writer, I'm going to write. And if I want to make a living at it, or I want to try and, you know, be able to pay some bills with what I do, that's what I do. So I don't want to lose anybody who might be interested in what I do. Right. And so that guy, when he said that, it just kind of like shut me up. And I thought, oh, okay, then perhaps we need to change the subject and not talk politics right now. And, you know, that goes back to the old rule of thumb that you don't talk politics or religion with with friends or relatives, I guess, because that's one of the quickest ways to lose that friend. And uh, so I just, we, we finished off that subject and I like immediately directed the, the focus back onto my books and got away from the politics. And I thought it's interesting that Stephen King is at a point and at a place when, you know, he may not like it, but I don't think he really cares at this point. If you don't like what he has to say, that's fine because there's plenty of people who do. So, right. you know, he's, he's at a point where he can afford to, you know, have people walk away from him because of his politics or what he thinks or whatever. Yeah. So, so he's very outspoken about it. He is at that point. I am not. <laughs> so I, you know, I have to be cautious of, of how I handle a conversation or whatever if it starts going that direction. Of course. Yeah, he's he's at that point in his career where, you know, he, people are going to... He, he gets... He has the benefit and the luxury of his labors, of being able to just be his self and say whatever he wants to say and not worry about if he offends somebody and they walk away and they and they and they say they're not gonna they're gonna boycott his books, um yeah. you know, his bottom line will be fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's like, Well, more power to you, so Yeah. And that's and that's hard. In the public in in the public life if you're somebody that is trying to publicly put your name out there and make like a brand and a name for yourself. You do have to be mindful of of how you're putting yourself out there and 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 yeah, losing potential customers. Cross, yeah. yeah, so I understand that totally. It's true, and and you know, cancel culture is a thing, and it's Man, it, it, it. You got to be careful. Yeah. I mean, it's it's just a real thing, and it's it goes on either side of the political spectrum. I'll I'll just say that, uh, you know, people are on social media now. Social media is sort of in its teenage years, yeah, and it's still relatively new, and it crosses all age spectrums and all belief spectrums and all political ideologies and everything, and everybody's got their opinions, and. Uh, and I'll just leave it at that. You know, it's people will dis yeah. people will disagree, and their instinct is to get everybody to turn against you. And that's that's an unfortunate as all of all the good things the internet has birthed. That's one of the negative things. Is well, and as, and as far as how, you know how great the internet is, it's just as um, devastating too. Right. You know, it's just, you know, I want you know because I don't know how old you are. But I know how old I am, and I I watch what's going on with the internet, and I I personally need the internet basically for research, um, especially for my my just 
trilogy of books that I'm working on right now, uh, my last two books, there is so much reading and research that I have to, you know, find to to be able to talk about or, or not talk about, but to to have be a relative um, storytelling with the characters that I'm creating. And it's like if I didn't have the internet, there's no way in the world that I could have written these these last two books that I did because there's just so much research that has to go on. So it's it's so great to have that at your fingertips and be able to do that. Um, but then you know in your in your free time when so you're on the internet, you know how it works. And you're working around it, and if you got Facebook or or, or um, Instagram, I guess, or, or Twitter, whatever, and any of the um, commercial outlets for social media, you all you have to do is play around for a very short time when you can see all the, the good and the evil of both sides of everything that's out there and and how easily, how easy it is to get to either side, you know? So it's the Internet is a great thing, and at the same time, it could very well be the thing that destroys us. So. Yeah, and it's still relatively new. I mean, the internet in its current state—I mean, it's only in about its thirties. I mean, as far yeah. as its lifespan goes, it's—it's—it's it's, it's fairly young, and there's no telling what it's going to look like, you know, in another another thirty years. There's no telling, you know, what iteration and what, you know, what it's going to look like. So it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, and. You know, with it is going to come. And one 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 problem that um, a lot of, I guess, more free nations, and so especially the United States, that this country, the society in this country, is so spoiled. They have been so spoiled for so long that they pretty much can do and say and have anything that they want right at their fingertips without regulation, without being told no you can't that anytime you do start to maybe I don't know in, I don't want to say infringe upon someone's rights but the minute that you start regulating you're saying okay look this is no longer you can't say this you can't do this or whatever anymore people just they, they go up in arms and it's like you say that the cancel culture they come out you know in droves and armies like that fighting against it and in that way you know our government has to be careful but they have to also be very strong and i'm telling you what when i when i first i don't know if you watched it but um did you ever watch uh, the handmaid's tale the series i know i know of it and i have heard good things but i've not watched it it's really good and the first season they, you know, they, they start out showing, um, it starts out looking like some people who are maybe going to leave the country or travel. And all of a sudden, they're, you know, they're being hunted down. They're being tracked down and taken by officials of the government because in that world, in, in Handmaid's Tale, um, they are, they, I guess, the, the changing... I, I'm not real sure how it works if it's supposed to be just a portion of the United States that's being affected by this, but it seems like that the government is saying, all right, this is the way things are now, and women are this in the society, and um, 
all these these freedoms that you may have grown up with, they are gone. And you cannot do this, not do that. You know, some simple basic things, basically just, you know, having your own life. And um, they show in, in kind of like in a clip type fashion how one day, you know, they're going along, the, the main characters are, they're just going along and they start seeing things happen in the streets um, because apparently new laws or whatever have been passed and you're not allowed to do this, not allowed to do that. And suddenly, you know, they're walking out of a store onto the street and they're seeing like um, government official guards chasing people down in the streets with guns, taking them at gunpoint or killing them if, if you know, need be right there in front of them when they're like, um, excuse me, is this not a free country? Are we not a free society? And you realize at that moment that no, you are no longer a free society. And and just watching the way the government just moved on the society once, to, you know, apparently they, had, they must have had, I don't think they ever really addressed uh, the leader of the country at that time, but it must have been a very dictator-like leader. And, and it's like, okay, these are the laws now, and you are not allowed to do this, not allowed to do that, and if you do it, we will hunt you down. We will shoot you and kill you, or we will take you in captivity. And you saw it happening right in the streets in that movie. And, or not that, or that show, not movie. But, um, so I'm watching that, and I kept thinking, and this was, so that was four years ago, I guess. And um, so when, you know, certain administration was coming into the government in this country, and we were really seeing a lot of uprising and a lot of um, marching against this and against that and whatever. And then the pushback from this admin, that administration. And, and then watching that TV show at the same time became kind of extra frightening. I was watching the show and I thought, you know, I'm seeing this on this TV show, but if I turn it to the news, I can see it on the news. And it was like, it was a very frightening thing. I think The Handmaid's Tale was a very timely and relative show. Uh, and, and just frightening in that fact. So, yeah. um, you know, so it, well, I guess what I started to say was uh, Americans are very spoiled. We've been very, very free for, you know, quite a while. And, uh, you know, obviously... Uh, different groups have had to fight for their their place, you know, women's rights and uh, racial equality and that kind of thing. And um, the LGBTQ uh, community, they're all having to fight their battles to gain their um, equality, I guess, in society. So we've had those fights, but at the same time, you know, you could go to the store and buy whatever you wanted. You could, you know, dress pretty much however you wanted. I grew up in Southern California and in grade school and uh, middle school and high school, you know, we could dress. We literally, you know, that was in, uh, I graduated high school in 1977. So up to that point, you know, you could go to school wearing pretty much whatever you wanted to do. Um, but that was also pre-internet, 
So porn and everything else wasn't quite as prevalent, quite out there. Um, you know, people didn't go to school dressed half naked and whatever. We just wore the style of clothes that we wanted. And, and, um, and then as I get older and I discover, and I was not raised Catholic, but as I got older, I'd start realizing, oh, there are Catholic schools. Everybody has to wear a uniform and that kind of thing. And, um, that struck me as, a, oh, I don't even know what to say. They, they, they pressure down on individuality and being who you are. Because I never had to wear a uniform to go to school. And so when I discovered there were schools and things out there that were not military, they were just, you know, other kinds of schools and that kind of things where kids had to wear a uniform to go to school, that just struck me as wrong. That was, I just thought, that's not right. Where is your individuality as a person? And that just comes from the way I was raised and the environment that I grew up in. And then, and the, I was thinking just the other day, probably the best time in my life in this country was the 1970s, between 1970 and 1980. And things before 70 there was the vietnam war and things were going on and there was a lot of issues there and then after 1980 uh i don't know the, the, the next upcoming young people uh in 1980 and 90 seemed to be getting a little bit more they got they got tired of the peace of love <laughs> uh, you know decade and so they started fighting back with with um anger i guess and with the, with the grunge movement of music and then there was a lot of and kids were being you know rebelling against their peace and love parents by being angry and and just disruptive i guess or or even destruct destructive and then it kind of just you know and then it was going that way up until the you know september 11 2001 attacks and then all of a sudden, now we have a whole other issue going on, which is the other side of the world, those countries and whatever that we never really thought about, um, all of a sudden, bam, they are in our forefront. They are in our face, and we have to think about it. And we have to think about um, how the rest of the world is functioning and how we're treating them and how they're treating us. And since the 9-11 attacks, that has been a very big um, you know, movement or, or next growth period of this country. And then you look at, I remember my kids when that happened, my son was born in 89 and my daughter was born in 91. So they were only, you know, my daughter was only like around 10 years old. And, you know, before 10, they probably, they, they have, I'm sure, you know, small memories, but after 10 years old, you start looking at the way the world's turning, and that's what they grew up in. So my daughter just turned 30 this year. And so the last 20 years of her life have been influenced by, um, you know, the, the political spectrum, I guess, throughout the world. And, but still, we, we've grown up in a very free society. And now, if we want to keep from total mayhem or whatever, there are going to be restrictions on 
either the internet or, or whatever else, um, there are going to be restrictions that people that were raised free in a free society, they are going to feel oppressed and they are going to become angry. And the only way that, that there's two ways that that's going to go. We, we either keep this, this medium kind of, all right, there's some good people and there's some bad people, or a lot of people are going to get very uh, angry and start fighting back, which I believe is what we saw a lot of during the past um, presidential administration. There was a lot of pushback because I think a lot of it was fear of where are we headed? Where is this administration going to take us? How much freedom are we going to lose? And and then when you know you watch like the Handmaid's Tale and you then you see the government actually sending out their own police guard with guns to in the streets, in your main streets, right outside of where you live, you start doing stuff that they don't want you to do. They will hunt you down and kill you. And the Handmaid's Tale has brought that fear right home. And then a lot of things that we saw in the past uh, four years, in the past uh, administration, were very touchy. They were there were people rebelling and fighting back, and that was an administration that was ready to fight back with them. That was ready to push back, and that was scary. Uh, so I'm sorry. What was the question? <laughs> <laughs> well, you were you were you were just getting you were starting to talk about hands Handmaid's Tale, and you were and you were comparing that to reality and how it touched on something that was a little bit too true and that it was scary and just kind yeah. of re- reaching this sort of this Orwellian level of yeah okay yeah, this yeah. is yeah, this I, is I funny. Don't, I'm sorry about that. I didn't mean to get off on a tangent. No, um, it was good. And I, and I wish I could remember. That. Yeah, well, it's no no telling. You know, you, you you hear something and then it triggers all these thoughts. And you were talking about the internet. That's what. Oh yes, yes. So that's my, my thought. Yeah, there's good and there's bad in the internet, and the good is really good, but the bad is also really bad. Yeah. So at what at what point are rules going to be established, and then to what degree are they going to be enforced? You know. So, yeah, it's a scary thought. There's, there's that, and then, and then that makes you start thinking about the future. So, you know, um, the the internet is a great thing, and you know, when, like you say, we're only thirty years into it at, at best, and so where is it going to go? And I see there's like two two futures. There's, you know, there's either Star Trek, and you're gonna they're gonna move forward into a very uh, futuristic technological way of life, you know, where everything's going to go in that direction, or we're going to go back to cavemen and we're going to destroy everything and people are going to be living in caves. So, you know, that, that's the two extremes. And I think a lot of, I only know this country, I don't know other countries, but I think a lot of in this country, we try to maintain the middle of the road. We try to maintain at least a middle class in a society where we no longer have a middle class. So, um, 
it's just uh, there you go. There you, I think yeah. I, I think I finished my thought out. <laughs> well, it's about where the internet can go. There's a he's a, a futurist and an inventor. His name is Ray Kurzweil. Are you familiar with him? I am not. Well, he was the inventor of many things. Uh, one of which is the modern synthesizer for music. He has many, many awards in the music industry. And uh, he was an inventor, I think, of talk-to-text speech. He's an inventor of a, of a crap ton of things. And he is also a predictor of the future based on where we are currently. And he's running at about an 89% accuracy thus far. And he says, he says that the future is where we will combine with the internet where our brains and the internet will, will sort of become entwined um, in what's called the singularity and how the another thought. <laughs> yeah well we, what are you thinking oh well well when you said that combined you know we the people will be combined with the internet whatever and I that gets me thinking about you know people you know first off microchipping their dogs and cats and whatever else and put a little chip in it so they know where their pet is all the time and then people getting concerned about the idea of people wanting to put that same kind of chip in their in their newborn in their child you know so the, I, I want to know where my child is all the time and I understand that one of the biggest fears of a parent is the idea of you know your child being lost or being abducted or something like that and if you have a little uh, GPS microchip or whatever in that kid, um, then, well, you know, the police or whoever can track them down and find out where they are. But at the same time, you know, to, to what degree is that chip going to go? I mean, are they going to, you know, and then that brings around the idea of, um, you know, then I think of the Bible and you think of like the book of Revelation. Oh, the mark of the beast. And the, and the, the Antichrist, the beast taking over, and everybody's got this mark. Well, what if that mark is just a little barcode that's microscopic? Yeah. And, you know, you run your hand under a scanner to buy your groceries at the store, and if you don't have that little microchip with that little barcode in it kind of thing, then you can't do it. You can't even buy, you know, food. And I can see that train of thought. I can see somebody's going to try to maybe even innocently try to make that happen with, with without bad intentions. But, you know, there's no way that you can do something like that without some of the wrong people taking that thing and making it bad. Oh, yeah. And so, you know, one way or another. And I don't think, you know, if you get onto the subject of, of that, 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 um, that future of, the Antichrist, if you want to call it that, taking over. I don't think that person will even know who they are at first. Because it's not like the movie The Omen, where the guy knows who he is. He, know, he knows I am the one who's supposed to you know, take over, be the one world leader and all that kind of stuff. I think it'll happen um, g just generically. The, the person with with those kind of thoughts of, of how society should be will somehow or another get into power and start um, convincing people of, of how they should be thinking and what they should be doing. And then enough people will say, yeah, we're going to 
we're going to turn society that way. And we've already discovered that you can do that within 20 years. You can, you can convince um, society of almost anything and given enough, you know, lead up, give, give them enough, you know, lead up time and, and convincing and brainwashing, if you want to call it that, going that way, it can, it can happen. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, Hitler did not happen overnight. If you go back and look at, you know, what Hitler did um, in World War Two, you know, there was a good long, you know, 10 years plus, you know, 15 years plus uh, buildup that, you know, he just wheedled in slowly, come in and come in and convince this many people and then convince that many people and then, you know, get to a point of power where the really bad stuff that you do, you have enough people backing you and guarding you and, and following you that you can keep the really bad stuff secret. And to the point, until you get all the people who didn't like you into your secret, and then you don't even have to worry anymore. Right. And um, I, you know, not going to, I don't want to, um, I guess, go on about any possible type of leaders that we may have in this country uh, that, that, you know, may start going in that direction. But I think there's a lot of fear out there that it could happen. I know that, you know, during the, the past administration in this country, I saw a lot of comparisons on, you know, on the internet or on Facebook. And I know a lot of it was um, whoever trying to stir the pot and, you know, put ideas in our heads. But a lot of those ideas were, you know, they weren't, they weren't, Founded, they 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 were possible or plausible, and it got us thinking, and it got us scared, and uh, I think it's I think it's something that needs to be considered. I guess. Yeah. Well, and the the, the Republican side was calling the left side Marxists and and all that, and the Democratic side was calling the conservatives Nazis and. You know, there's there's a lot of language, and there's a lot of uh, name calling coming from either side, and it always, yeah. no matter what administration is in there, it always seems like somebody's calling out that they're, you know, somebody's trying to take away your freedoms, and somebody's trying to create a, a military state, and trying to take away your guns and take away your freedoms, and you know, it 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 never seems to end where one side always just thinks the worst of the other side and the media and, and all of that seems to really stoke the fire. Yeah, they do. And, but and I, and I just, you know, I think it's as long as I'm, you know, spouting off about this kind of thing, the, um, the administration of number 45 during, during that four years, I think there was, I mean, if you look at how many marches and, that went on and protests and, you know, riots and, and everybody will argue as to who was doing the rioting. You know, they'll say, well, this was a peaceful protest. And the people who really, you know, were protesting, they maintained being peaceful. But you always have a bad outside element that comes in and ruin it for whoever, ruins it for the good side or makes it worse for the bad side or whatever. And I think, um, you know, you saw that for four years from almost day one of that administration. 
people were protesting hugely in big numbers. Bigly. And, uh, what? Bigly. <laughs> Bigly, yeah. And, um, to use his words. And, you know, I, I think there was just a whole lot of fear and then a whole lot of pushback on that fear because, you know, since the, uh, the January 6th insurrection, that's the right word? That is. Um, after, from that time on, you know, there was, there was a lot of the right wing side really heavily protesting Joe Biden and they still are. And, um, and Biden is not perfect and he messes up. And number 45 did, you know, some good things. But, and like, like I've told many people that my opinion about that administration is maybe not as much, um, for what he did or didn't do, which I am in disagreement of a lot of it, but a lot of it has to do with just him as a person. And I ha I was, you know, physically sick, waking up every day, wondering if today is the day when the world explodes or when he's, you know, can I just say, you know, hey, I'm not gonna do this for that person, so I'll just drop a bomb on him or whatever. I just remember during those four years, it was my stomach was unsettled all the time. And since Biden has gotten in there and since after January 6th, good or bad, you know, there's going to be um, things to say good and bad about his, about Biden's administration and what he does. But that's politics. That's what he does. It's not him. I don't feel like he is actually trying to light the fire under a volcano. Whereas number 45 did. It's like he saw the volcano exploded and he loved it. And he wanted to set <laughs> off another one. And it's just like, dude, I can't live in this kind of atmosphere. It makes me, you know, it makes me sick as far as wondering if tomorrow is even going to be here. Thanks to you, you know. So a lot of it has to do with the person themselves and and you know for good or bad whatever biden may do or not do or try to do you get the impression that he's not out to blow us all up and that alone that just in that alone gives me a more calm and peaceful feeling he's going to do things that i'm not going to agree with a lot of people are not going to agree with but you do have the sense that you can talk it out that you can work through the things. It's you don't have the feeling that you know. Well, my way is right, your way is wrong, and if you disagree with me, then I will, you know, break you down in the streets. And so, so that's kind of like my feeling, I guess, between the last administration and this one. Um, it's maybe not so much what they do; it's how they do it, how they go about it, and. and who they are as a person. Yeah, and no, I, I agree. So, anyways, I'm here just to sell my fictional books. <laughs> well, you know, it's it's hard to, this is all relevant stuff, this is the world that we're living in, and or this yeah. is what the past has wrought, has, hath wrought. so it's worth yeah, talking we about. We shouldn't, we shouldn't talk about the internet, I guess. <laughs> so what... I 
so what are you working on now? I am. Uh, <laughs> let me let me make a real quick backtrack here. Yeah, yeah. I had decided back in uh, 20, 2015, I think. Yeah, 2015. Early 2015, maybe even the end of 2014. I came to the, it came to my brain to write this trilogy of books about a. I'm about to, my sinuses are closing up, so if I start getting really nasal, excuse me, it's, it's this house I live in, I think. But okay. um, I got it in my head to write a story about, and uh, i trying to think how I did, an undead motorcycle club. It's about a motorcycle club that the members, they're no longer alive. But they're not dead in the ground. They're undead. But they're not the walking dead. They're not zombies. They're they're uh, they're like regular people. They just don't breathe or eat, you know, because they're yeah they're walk they're walking dead is what they are. And uh, that came about through a guy at the time back in 2014. I was watching the series, the TV series, The Sons of Anarchy, which I don't know if you ever saw that one, but I love that show. Oh yeah, it's a great show. Yes, and so I, I, the Sons of Anarchy was really on my mind, and then I, uh, I had some back surgery and stuff back then, and I was in a hospital, um, and one night I was flipping through, you know, the channels that you can get on a hospital TV, and I didn't realize it at the time, but I had caught it pretty much right at the beginning, but I had clicked on to um, Ken Burns, who makes a lot of documentaries, Ken Burns had a documentary called The Dust Bowl, and The Dust Bowl was about um, the middle of this country, started in the middle of this country, a time in the mid-1930s when the Depression was going on, and the farmers in, well, they, they narrowed it down, the base home was, I think it was Boise, Boise I want to say Oklahoma? Um, yeah, and uh, so that's kind of where it started for these farmers. There was a uh, agricultural devastation thing going on with the weather and the planting of food, wheat, corn, and other things, and crops were dying, and um, the idea was to, well, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll plant more for next season and whatever, and and get this back going again. And what they were doing was they were planting upon things that were dying and phasing out, I believe, due to the weather and other things. Anyways, I, it's very complicated, and I'm not sure exactly how it all worked without looking it back up again. But the, the, for like a couple of years, the farmlands were just turning to dirt. And then these, these winds were coming up, and these... Um, and they were causing these, what they call dust, dust, the dust bowl was determined, um, where these huge winds, and this was like, these things could be like a mile high and 200 miles long. Wow. And when you think about that, and you think about this big wall of dirt just blowing over, you know, a state or more than one state and just covering it, blowing all this dirt that, that uh, the farmlands had turned into, 
it got to where, you know, people could not go outside without a mask on. There was so much residual dirt in the air, even after the strong winds had passed, there was still this film of dirt that was just everywhere, and it covered everything. It was burying houses. That's how deep it got. It got to some of these farms. I've looked up, there are pictures you can look up on the internet that show you houses that are buried up to, you know, the middle and beyond and an up to high set window on a house. They had to dig a trench out for the front door just to get in and out. And you look at their farmland and you see that level of dirt is now up to the middle, top middle part of their barn. You, you know, people are now walking around on ground that if they did a little jump, they could jump up onto the roof of their, their barn, you know, and the farms and stuff. And that's how bad it got. And so I'm watching this, this documentary on this and these people and how they were living and how they had to get through it. And they're wearing gas masks and everything else to, to get around it. And like when the winds were coming and stuff, it would bring in a lot of electricity. People couldn't even get in their cars because they couldn't touch the handle of the car because there was so much like static electricity in it. And I'm watching this, this documentary and I'm just fascinated. So then I've seen that I've got the sons of anarchy on my mind and the hospital is pumping me full of all kinds of weird, you know, medications <laughs> give me to sleep so they can do their thing on me or whatever. And I was having serious dreams, let me tell you. And, um, and it just came to me, I want to write a story about a motorcycle club in the 1930s. And they came out of the Dust Bowl. They came, that's, that's the area from where they came. So I started writing the book. And like I say, I don't really do an outline. I don't do a whole lot of planning. I just kind of get a few characters in the story where I want to start. And I just hit go and I go. And um, so I started writing that. And I started thinking about the story I wanted to tell. And I thought, first of all, if, if I'm thinking I want to write maybe a 300-page book, if I'm thinking that, the 1930s is not a good place to try and put that many pages into because they're just, you don't have a lot of variables to deal with. They, you know, they barely had a movie theater to go to, let alone, you know, and, they, and from where I was starting, people live, you know, few and far apart. So there just wasn't a whole lot of things to work with story-wise to, to, to validate a 300-page book or whatever, in my mind. I mean, maybe because I try to put too much into it. I don't know. I could have dragged it out, I guess. But so I started thinking about that as I was writing it. And then I thought, well, what if I, what if I make my, I, I separate the book up into different decades what if I say, all right, here's the 1930s. And then somewhere, you know, a third of the way book, I say, and now I'm going to jump on my characters 10 years, and here they are 10 years later in the 1940s. And then I thought, and then what if I go to the 50s? What if I do in one book three decades? Well, how am I going to do that? Am I going to show a, um, a progressional, generational thing within this particular group of, of bikers that I've come up with 
this handful of maybe five bikers? Do I have them get older and bring their kids into it or what? And that was when I, I was probably on chapter two. I mean, I probably got through one chapter and I started thinking, how am I going to do this? What am I going to do? And that's when the whole supernatural thing came to my head. And I thought, what if I kill these people off, but I bring them back as the undead and now they can never age. And now I can just, I can walk them through time. I can come back 10 years from now and they're still 20 years old. But, but, you know, the life of motorcycle clubs and whatever has evolved and gone on. And that to me just sounded like a brainstorm. So that's, that's where I went. And then I thought, okay, if I started in the 1930s, if I want to bring this up to date to now, and this was in, this was in 2015, I guess, um, I could put three decades in each book. And I could write a trilogy, three books, and I could bring them right up to the 2010s. And these people are still 20 years old. Now, their family and the people around them, they're going to grow old and die and move on and whatever. Um, and there's there's a lot of uh, family stuff that I do in the, in the first decade in the 30s and then a little bit less in the 40s. And it was about that time that I realized I really need to strictly make this book about the motorcycle club because if I try to branch off to maybe their extended family and whatever that is going to become real complicated that's going to get to where the you know if I keep jumping a decade ahead and then try to remind the reader you know who these people are and where they are now and whatever I'm going to have to um, I'm going to have to limit you know the characters that I'm you know, mainly focused on, and uh, otherwise the reader will get too lost with with the progression of generations on one hand, and then with the, the bikers that never age on the other hand. And so I thought, okay, I'm gonna I need to make this about the club and stick mainly to them. And you know, and I kind of as time went on with the book, I did pretty much just there's two main two main leaders of the, of the club um, it, was, it was a guy and his girlfriend and when they, the book started out it was like their family and so I kind of faded away from their families and I focused on them and their club and so the whole family thing is really kind of falling by the wayside but um, but I do bring you know few people in here and there and this was the son of this person and that and that but um, so that's that's what I'm working on now and so I, I did the first book uh, first and then, and then it became a longer book than what I planned on because I thought if I break this up into decades if I want to give a legitimate decent story to each section of the book you know in each decade and it's going to have to end at a certain place because now I'm going to jump it ahead 10 years. So it almost started turning out to be, well, in fact, it did turn out to be. There's three 200-page stories in each book. So there's six, each book right now is 600 pages. Wow. And the first two, the first 200 is, is their life and what is going on in the 30s. And the middle of the book is in the 40s. And then the last 200 pages is the 50s 
And that was the first book. So then I was looking forward to writing. And I'm about to go on a little roll here. I'm trying to keep it short, but it ain't happening. Um, so then I was ready to go with the second book. It's like, oh, man, this can be the 1960s. And I've already had these people. They had to migrate out of you know Oklahoma back in the 30s. And now they're in California because that's what I knew was California. So now it's the 1960s, Southern California. And I thought, this is going to be great with, you know, with the rock music that was out then and, and what was going on. And um, so when I finished the first book, I was ready to roll on the second book. But at the end of the first book, after I'd already written it, I was basically setting it up for publication to get it out there. I started having some health issues that were, they were pretty bad and kind of scary. And and, uh, and then at some point you get it in your head, it's like, I'm going to die. And I'm going to die soon. And this, I, I don't see myself as long for this world. So I started thinking about, well, what do I need to wrap up before I go that I want to do? And I had... Uh, like we said back in the beginning, I had spent my whole life writing poetry or, you know, my own lyrics to other songs, a couple of short stories and things here and there. And I had done some artwork that um, I was never an artist. It was not good artwork, but I had a really interesting concept kind of thing going on. And, uh, and I thought, I have boxes of notebooks of my poetry and stuff. And I thought, I always wanted to pull the best of that stuff out and clean it up and put it in a book if for nobody else other than my own children because who I am and what I think and how I think and you know my personality and beliefs and whatever all that stuff is wrapped up in my poetry if you want to know who I am read my poetry and that will give you great insight to the way I think and I thought I want to do that for my kids and so I had to, before I wrote the second dead biker book, I had to get that thing together. And I thought, well, this will take about six months. It took two years. And one of the reasons why, when I, first of all, before I even read my poetry, I thought, let me just type it up because a lot of it is chicken scratching and you can't, it's, it's too hard to decipher and make sense, know whether it's good or not. So I just pulled out all the notebooks and I just typed them up. There were times when I was typing, when I was actually listening to music and I wasn't even thinking about what I was typing. I was just reading the word and typing it up so I could get it to where I could read it. Then I went back to it and I had, I had almost 600 works of writing, wow. you know, poems or whatever. And out of that 600, I came up with just under 200 that were worth fixing and making good. And um, so, you know, I weeded through it. I got it narrowed down to what I thought was worth working on. And I worked on it and I made it, um, made it as good as I thought I could make it at the time. And a lot of it is pretty good. Some of it is kind of self-indulgent. It was me going off on a rant or whatever. But still, it's, you know, where my thinking was at. So then I also pulled out my, my, uh, my artwork that I always, I liked the concept of what I do, of what I was doing or had done, 
but I was really bad. I was I was not an artist. I was not good. And I thought, how? What can I do with this to make it viable? To make it worth putting in the book? Because I really, really liked the concept of what I was doing, and I was looking at it, and I thought, I can't draw good enough to make that you know what I want. And I started thinking about the covers of my books, and I thought, I have learned to work magic in Photoshop. I am pretty good in Photoshop. And um, I started thinking about my covers and all the different kinds of things I've done with the covers. And I thought, you know, I can go online and these weird designs and, and drawings, whatever that I have, I can find stuff that is almost exact to that or at least close enough that I can manipulate it in Photoshop. And I can lay it right on top of this picture. So, um, it's too bad I don't, we don't have a visual thing that I can show you. But, so anyways, um, I would look at my picture and I would size it. And then I would go online and I would find the different particles that, that were pretty much exact replicas, no matter whether it was a vampire's mouth with blood dripping from it or whatever. I could go on and find the images and then just you know, cut it out and manipulate it, make it look good, and lay it right on top of the original picture. So that you can look at the original and say, wow, that's a piece of crap. And then you can look at the one right next to it and say, wow, it's like you took that piece of crap and you brought it to life and made it, you know, beam and glow. And uh, and it just looks amazing. Um, and so I spent two years working on that book, which is my art and poetry book. And it's called Moments of Clarity. Uh, shit, there's a oh, yeah, poems, prose, and pictures. Poems, prose, and pictures. Moments of Clarity, poems, prose, and pictures. And it's an oversized book. It's, it's uh, God, what size is that? It's like, uh, it's like a coffee. Yeah, I mean, it's a coffee table book for sure. Yeah, yeah, it's a coffee table book. And it's close to 200 pages long. Um, just under that, maybe between 150 and 200, and it's and it's my poetry and my art. I got it all together, and I right from the cover on through. I love that book. It just it's it's if you want to know who I am, it's in that book somewhere. And uh, so I did that, and two years later, it was time to start the second book in my Undead Motorcycle Club series. And by that time, I was dead in the water in my mind as far as that story goes. I couldn't, I knew, it's like, I know the characters, I know it's the 1960s, but I, for the life of me, cannot bring myself to start telling a story. I just was having so much trouble, and it was coming out like one word at a time, or one sentence, or one paragraph at a time, and then stop, and it's like, I don't know where to go next. And probably... The first 75 pages are like that. It's great story. The first 75 pages are great. It came out wonderful, but it came out one word at a time. And so it was slow coming until I could get myself back in the groove of what I was doing. Yeah. And I was about 75 pages in, and then, boom, it just really started coming. And it was like just chug right through the rest of the book and uh, 
so that so I I love the second book. I love the second book as much as the first book, and the story continues. And I do the 1960s, the 70s, and the 80s. And so then the third book, the next one is in line, and I'm still feeling pumped, ready to go with it. Um, I did have another little project I was working on in the meantime, but that was more personal. I was digging through all of my old um, um, eight millimeter videotapes from a camcorder, and and even before that, some. But all we had was VHS uh, cameras. Oh yes. So there's stuff recorded on VHS. And all this stuff on tape that's sitting in a box that's got like the early life of my kids on it and stuff like that. And I thought, I know this tape is going to be like disintegrating and my kids will probably never see it. And if you've got a two hour tape, you know, you'll, you'll film 10 or 15 minutes at Christmas and then you'll put the camera down for several months, pick it up on somebody's birthday or if something's going on or whatever. And so on a two hour tape, Nobody ever really sits and watches an old two-hour tape, you know, of their of their videotapes. And there's a lot of golden moments in between, you know, the holiday moments and little things you pick up and film your kid doing something or whatever for five minutes. And so I'm going through all these tapes and I'm finding this great stuff in between. And uh, I thought. I need to digitalize this into the computer. I need to be able to put this on a flash drive and take it over to their house and say, here, here you go. Here's your whole early life and, and other things, all at the touch of a finger, you know, that you can pop in the computer and go. And so that's the project I've been working on. And um, I've got it all in there now to the computer. And I, I could, at this moment, if I wanted to, put everything that I want to give them on a flash drive and just give it to them. But I had a couple of things in there, like way back when I first got my eight millimeter camera, I thought I'm gonna make a movie. <laughs> and uh, I went out with a couple of friends and we filled a bunch of scenes and I, I edited it back then, but the editing back then was basically going from one uh, VCR recorder to another one. And it's like, go here and stop there and then run this part next. And, it's very, um, I mean, it was structured really good. I structured the edit really good, but it could be done a little clearer. And I, and I had a finished copy, but like I say, it's getting old and the tape is doing this kind of curvy thing at the top. Um, the sound is, is really good. The whole soundtrack to it is really good and the talking and everything. But the picture itself, there are moments when the picture is like whacking out and then I looked at the some of the original footage and some of those same scenes the picture's great it's like wow the original footage is really clear but on my edited version is kind of messed up so now I have all this video editing stuff in my computer and I'm going to go back and re-edit some of these little you know movie things I made and two of them I made with my kids and once I get those edited, then I'm going to give it to them. And that's next, because I've got everything in the computer. It's all digital now. All i got to do is do that edit, give it to them, and then I am off to work on the third book in this, this Dan Motorcycle Club trilogy. That's awesome. Yeah. So let's give everybody just like sort of a – I'm going to give them a brief overview on your book. So you got The Melting, 
And then, yeah. pardon my pronunciation, the second one, is it pronounced tropas? It's trope. Trope. My mistake. Yeah. It's very French sounding. It is very French sounding. And my yeah. my Neanderthal brain, I didn't, uh, didn't, I butchered that one. And then the third one, you got Damon Breyer. And then yeah. you've got uh, Tendrils, Creepy and Crawly. Tendrils is my short story book. Yes. I've got like 21 short stories in here, I think. And then you've got clair- uh, clarity, and, uh, moments in clarity, poems, prose, and pictures. Yeah. And and then you've got the Dead MC, the beginning yeah. of the trilogy, followed by the others, which was the the second one. And now you're going to be working on the third installment. Do you have a tentative title for that one? It's called Long Live the Dead. Long Live the Dead. That's an awesome title. Yeah, it's. I've had that title since book one. I thought the third one in this thing is going to be called Long Live the Dead. So. So and I, I already, yeah. it's like I already know where I'm going with it, and I just have to write it. So. Yeah, well, it's like taking all that time and investing all that time in the story. I'm sure now you're you're invested in the characters, and you have an yeah. idea as to where you kind of want to see it through to where it'll be satisfactory for you. I mean, you want it to be yeah. cool for the reader, but ultimately, you're spending so much time with this. It's got to be your love. Yeah, yeah, and I, you know, I I know who all the characters are in my. My character uh, group has grown actually quite a bit. So there's there's a lot of characters, a lot of main characters, um, and I, I that's the only thing that I get you know very cautious about is keeping all of them to where I know where they are. The reader knows where they are. They've each got enough storyline for themselves to make them a the valuable carry character to the story. And uh, and and it's you know and that's a game in itself is is giving each storyline or each character enough of their own story to to make it really interesting you know no matter what character uh, you're reading about you're into that character for that moment you're not you're not saying well let's get back to somebody else let's you know get to whatever it's like the story really. It's a compelling thing. It just keeps coming at you. Yeah. So, so let's. Uh, I want to put. I want to give you sort of this final thought, and I and I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I'm curious as somebody that has written as much as you've written. Um, you have a lot of experience in writing different things, writing screenplays, and writing short stories, and writing novels, and writing poetry. So, what would you say? What do you want to say to someone who's wanting to follow their passions and maybe they don't know where to start or maybe they want to be a writer or something. It doesn't even have to be writing necessarily. But if in this instance, let's just say writing. What do you say to somebody starting out after your experience and your hindsight? What words of wisdom do you have for someone starting out? Well, I guess I would say just do it. Don't talk about it. Don't think about it. Just do it. And if it's something that takes knowledge or experience to know how to do it well, uh, then do that. And for example, and this is this has been my biggest downfall and the hardest thing I've had to deal with is as a writer, I am not always um, I, I do not always know the exact punctuation or the, the, the right way to, to maybe 
put a paragraph or a sentence together. I am really bad with run-on sentences. I could write an entire book in one sentence <laughs> by just by just running on with it. Um, so so my um, recommendation would be, even if it's just one class in you know school, high school, or college, or wherever you're at, or, or if you just want to do it online somehow, but learn the rules of grammar and punctuation and, you know, learn what is the proper way to put thing, you know, things together like that. And if it's not writing, um, whatever it is, if you're going to work on a car, you have to know the function of that, the functionings of that engine in that car and what goes where, what leads to what and what causes what and, you know, how it works, how it makes it happen. Well, that same thing applies to anything you do. And if it's writing, you need to learn how to write before you can start um, manipulating it, before you can start, you know, taking off and doing your own thing with it. You have to know what is right before you can start taking maybe what is a little bit wrong and making it right. And... If you, and that's, that's the thing that's come back at me over and over and over again in the past. Um, I, one of the first things I learned when I wrote The Melting, and I showed it to a guy who was a real professional, had a lot of a lot of things published and whatever. And he told me, and I didn't know him very well, so he didn't care. Uh, but I met him, and I asked him um, if he would look at my writing, and he said, sure, bring me a page. And so I picked out what I thought was, you know, one of the best pages. Uh, and this is way back when I was first writing The Melting. So that was back in 1989. And he read it. And, you know, he asked me, is it okay if I mark on this, you know, what, what, what you should be doing? And I swear, he marked that one page up, the typewritten page, so bad I could almost not even read it. It's like <laughs> every line, every line, every word, everything was just like, you know, switch this, turn this around, do this, la, 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 all the way down in that page when he gave it back to me was this. And he said, he said, you need to learn how to write. He said, I'll tell you one thing. He said, you can tell a hell of a story. He said, you're a great storyteller. That's, you know, the way what you've said here story-wise is great. He says, but your writing sucks and you need to learn how to write. And that was kind of a depressing moment because... I had already written the whole book of the melting. I had already written the whole book. Yeah. And now he's telling me that my writing sucks. So I knew that I was going to have to restructure that book and learn how to write. And do I really want to do that? And it was kind of very depressing for about three days. And then I just decided, well, it's what I want to do. So I guess I need to learn how to do it. So that's my advice. Whatever you want to do, Start today, but learn the functions of what you're doing. Yeah, I think that's awesome. That's great advice. I agree. And being not and not be afraid like you did to ask people for help or oh, yeah. or ask people for their opinions and then learn how to take those criticisms and learn to grow like what you did. You took it, it yeah. hurt for it stung for a minute, and then you said, Well, it is what it is, and now I'm gonna put the work in. So, exactly. It's a good attitude. And, and if you know that the person you're asking, if you know that 
they know. If you know by listening to them that they know what they're talking about, take it to heart and make it work. And like you say, don't be afraid to ask anybody. So That's awesome. Well, and people can find your work on Amazon. They can just search yes, your name and they'll find your works. I have a, uh, there is a, I have a page on Amazon that, um, just to short, the, the, I guess the URL or whatever they call it there, um, link on there. I guess you could look me up or just go to Amazon.com, but I can give you that number. I'm going to say it real quick here. It's Amazon.com backslash hyphen backslash E, the letter E, backsplash, and then B as in boy, 076X8VCMG. So there. Now, you've got that recorded. They can play it back if they want. But if you go to that page, uh, you'll see all of my work in all of its formats. Uh, everything is available in an ebook right now. Um, I just recently wrote the first two dead books, the undead books. Um, well, the dead, they're both of them I have just really souped up and fixed up and made a, a wonderful uh, ebook version of it right now. It's very vibrant. You can, you know, click on the links and go to whatever chapter you need to and whatever. And it's only $2.99. So $2.99 a piece for each of those books. Go there and get it. And it's on the cloud. So whatever your system is, you don't need a Kindle. You don't need a special kind of thing to do it. I, I've uploaded it. I mean, I've got it and loaded right straight to my computer. Um, and they're all in there. Everything is in an ebook, but those two especially, I have just really made look beautiful. So uh, you should go there and get it today. Awesome. And please do. And Brad, thank you for talking with me. I've really enjoyed talking with you. And I'd like to, if uh, time warrants, I'd love to sit down and talk with you again. That would be great. Anytime, man. Uh, it's been good talking to you, too. And I really, really appreciate you taking the time. And, and with with my voice as messed up as it is, whatever, I really appreciate you taking the time to let me, let me spout my thoughts, I guess. Absolutely. Uh, and it's been a joy. I appreciate it. Okay. All right. I'll talk to uh, you soon. Thanks. Talk Thank to you. you. Bye-bye.